0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's August in the art world, so we're on the second week of our two-week summer break. Today we dip into our archive for a 2013 conversation with Mary Reed Kelly, who mixes lyrical, often bitingly funny poetry with drawing with video. At the time she and I talked, the Institute of Contemporary Art Boston was showing a mini-exhibition of four Reed Kellys. Now the Hammer Museum is featuring Reed Kelly's work in a Hammer Projects exhibition. It features three works that look into the Greek myth of the Minotaur, a hybrid creature that is part bull and, in Reed Kelly's telling, part woman. First up is 2013's Priapus Agonistes, then the next year's Swinburne's Pacify, and finally The Thong of Dionysus, which Reed Kelly finished this year and is debuting at the Hammer. The exhibition was organized by Emily Gonzalez-Jarrett and will be on view through September 27th. Mary Reed Kelly, after the break. The Hammer Museum presents Mark Bradford, Scorched Earth, the artist's first solo museum exhibition in Los Angeles. Comprising 12 paintings, including a large-scale work on the Hammer's lobby wall and a sound installation titled Spider-Man, this new body of work refers to formative moments in the artist's life and contemplates the body in crisis. Scorched Earth brings together Bradford's artistic practice, social activism, and history as a native Angelino on view June 20th to September 27th, 2015. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents a major exhibition of six dynamic and colorful installations on a monumental scale by preeminent British sculptor, Phillida Barlow. Featuring large-scale works created specifically for the Nasher galleries, the works playfully tower over visitors, creating multiple compelling environments. See the London-based artist's exhibition, Philadelphia Barlow, Trist, from May 30th through August 30th. For more information, visit NasherSculptureCenter.org or call 214-242-5100. And we're back. Mary Reed Kelly, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So I was watching the Art 21 episode that included a segment on you, And your sister said that as a child, you and she created elaborate plays and that you were the instigator of this little theater of the home. Can you remember any one of those in particular?
1: I wish that I could. And I wish Alice was here because she seems to have a much more particular memory of all that. I mean, what I remember is just a constant stream of dressing up and makeup and basically Halloween every day. And and i don't particularly remember if there were themes that we dwelled on and i was the ol- i am the oldest of four and i think that probably just as much as the dressing up was appealing it was very probably appealing for me to have three younger minions to kind of boss around and so <laughs> i i was surprised to hear that alice retained kind of a particular memory of of what we were doing. But you know, I don't I don't have any feeling that what we were doing was all that much different than, you know, children with a lot of uh free range get up to in the in their everyday life.
0: You started out when you got interested in art as a painter mm-hmm. and and kind of drifted back toward I don't know, what you do is more than than video, but I'm not really sure that there's a word for it. It's kind of multidisciplinary video, if you will. Were you consciously trying to mix painting with with new media, or was that just a byproduct of, of what you were interested in at the time?
1: It was a byproduct. What happened was, when I was at Yale, I got very interested in some, some Yale students, actually, who had left school and gone to fight in the First World War, and I was... I benefited very greatly from by the fact that Yale still had a lot of their papers on archives, so I was able to to get quite a good feel for what they were like and what their families were like and I also at that moment so i so I was kind of getting a grasp on on a character kind of for for the first time, and the other thing that was happening was that I was realizing in this kind of while I was getting more and more interested in the First World War and the early early 20th century, I was realizing how critical poetry was to not just the artistic culture of the day, but just the broader, more popular culture. So for example, you, you've got, of course, Ezra Pound and Imagism and The Wasteland and, and all that kind of self-consciously avant-garde stuff, but you also have music hall verse and poetry written by basically people from all walks of life. So poetry was key to understanding both the artistic culture and the popular culture of the day. Um, One of my friends, a historian, told me, and I think this makes so much sense, that in terms of the Second World War, the culture kind of grappled with with the meaning and, and the fallout from the Second World War in cinema and for the first world war that really happened in poetry. So for the first time I started really reading poetry and being interested in poetry and that led to just saying, well what the heck, I'll I'll try to write some poetry. So that combination of getting a grasp on a character and having and having it dawn on me that poetry was so central to this time period made it really natural to, to start writing in, in a voice and a character's voice. And then the rest of the rest of the story is that Patrick, my husband and collaborator was down to visit me one weekend and brought his, his video camera. And the fact that he was there just made me think, well, I'll just skip over to the bathroom and, you know, put on this costume or make myself into this drawing. And and then we just, I kind of recited this short, fairly silly poem. And that was the first video that we did together, Camel Toe.
0: So it was words that got you interested in the moving image, kind of ironically.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it was.
0: You've made four films about World War One: Camel Toe, uh, which you just mentioned, The Queen's English, Sadie the Saddest Sadist, and You Make Me Iliad. So here in the U.S., World War One tends to be the forgotten war a little bit. It's nowhere near as prominent in the popular imagination as is the good war, World War Two. You mentioned becoming interested in World War One at Yale, but probably something broader than, than than getting your MFA on that particular campus started your interest in World War One. And I was wondering what it was.
1: Well, it was pretty simply that at the time, which was two thousand and seven We were deeply embroiled in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and it was very much on my mind. And I think I was trying to, I was looking for models, basically, on how artists could respond to war or deal with it. Or just, I was looking, I was looking for examples. I was looking for...
0: A form of address, almost?
1: Yeah, I was. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I had a lot of questions because, you know, the artistic ferment around the time is so, so rich, and it's confusing, um, the role that the war has in modernism, kind of with a capital M, because if you look before the war, you have things like cubism and futurism that are basically kind of destroyed by the war, put a stop to by the war. But then, of course, you also have things like Dada and surrealism and this quality of absurdity that directly comes out of the war. So does the war destroy modernism or does it invent modernism? And I think that complexity, among many other things, really drew me to the time period and and to the artists that lived through it. And I think what I, what I found was not what I was expecting. It was just people's attitude towards the war and war in general were just radically different. And we really, well, for example, when the war started in 1914, and in August, you know, there's this great scene in All Quiet on the Western Front at the very beginning, when all all the students rush out as one and sign up for the war, and they're kind of egged on by their teacher. And that kind of Immediate rush to sign up for the war across basically all classes, including artists. That that was very real. You know, the, the the movie really kind of was was accurate in its portrayal for this incredible rush to to join the war. And so you didn't have this artists. Artists had a different position. Artists were just as eager as anyone else to join the war. Uh, Whereas now I think it's it's there are some exceptions, but it's 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 much more uncommon to have an artist eagerly participating in in warfare or or volunteering to do so. You know, it's kind of I think it's fair to say that it's a given that artists choose to be choose to be pacifist or choose to be anti-war. And it's just not the case then. And I think one of the things that that was an impetus for this mass rush to sign up for the war in 1914 was this feeling that the war was going to be a great experience with a capital E, you know, and that and that artists especially were in need of this experience that they could kind of condense and translate into art
0: although they did translate it into their work especially the german artists but it it ended up not being the the war ended up not being the progressive force that many particularly in british society expected.
1: Oh yes, i mean it, of course that's that isn't that a truism about war is that you always prepare for the last war and you always get something completely unexpected and i feel like there's no war that that's more true than the first world war because everyone of course is preparing for an essentially a napoleonic 19th century brief war and what they got is the most you know, the invention of modern warfare. They get the tank, they get the flamen warfare, they get the fixed machine gun, you know, things that were formerly important such as horses and cavalry and swords and bayonets, th- those kind of recede into the past and people are just caught in in utter confusion about you know, not knowing how to proceed. And so there's just this this just wretched quagmire. You know, the artists, and you you mentioned the German artists, and certainly, you know, George Gross and Otto Dix, you know, do this incredible, they take this critical uh, view post-war that's that's so iconic. The the artist that surprised me most in what he did with his war experience was Fernand Leger, and of course, so when Leger joins the war, he's a little bit older. I think he's in his early to mid 30s at the beginning of the war. So he and he's he's in the trenches with you know 18 and 19 year old, mostly farm laborers and and workmen and mechanics. And and Leger, of course, had had a, a career as kind of a, one of the very first second wave Cubists. So he you know for, he was certainly already underway with his artistic career in the way that Otto Dix really wasn't because Otto Dix was 18 or 19 when he joined the war. And, and Leger was almost gassed to death at Verdun in, in I think, 1916 or 17. And so Leger certainly had, in terms of a horrifying experience, he, he really did get the full dose of, of the World War I experience. But the conclusions that he drew from it were radically different for, from artists like an artist like Otto Dix. And it, I think it's just, it's just so surprising. He just, he turned that horrifying experience into, well, there's this fairly well-known quote of his where he talks about how how much he, he grew to love the people that he was in the trenches with, essentially kind of the, the salt of the earth, men that he was spent so much time with and he wanted to celebrate them like the working man. And also he talks about this vision of seeing a giant artillery gun gleaming in the sunlight firing. And so it's just this symphony of the beauty of technology and the nobility of the working man. And he takes this into his war after the year uh, after he takes this into his art after his war years and makes this celebration of public life everyday life that it's so he says that after his war experience he couldn't go back to the avant garde of of 1912 1913 he couldn't go back to the tabletop still life that he wanted to make art about the world and all of its the art about the the public sphere the city advertisements people on the street and th- so it almost it was almost like the war made him love the world and love humanity more it's just such a remarkable conclusion to have drawn from his experience
0: you mentioned dada earlier and of course world war 1 gave us dada which was simultaneously an art and cultural movement both both art and and theater and other things and in many ways, Dada was the world's first true multinational anti-war movement. And I gather Dada has been a particular interest of yours since you started making your films.
1: Uh, yeah, it has.
0: So in Dada, often the games that artists played with words and images and associations are, are more important for their playfulness and their oddity than they are as a, a coherent whole or as a masterwork. Or, 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 you know, the, the the games and the play is really more important than narrative or the arc of a story. Right. And I wonder if that's something that you've thought a lot about or, or to which you've been attracted.
1: Well, definitely. I mean, I would put uh, Dada in that category and certainly, I mean, particularly Duchamp and the way he, I mean, Duchamp is really one of, one of a couple artists, including Joyce and also Thomas Hood, this totally unknown Victorian poet, who for whom, for whom punning and wordplay is really an, extent, an essential expressive mode. And so for that reason, Duchamp in particular and Dada in general has is, is been important to me. And so I've thought a lot about, well, why, why, why is wordplay and punning and these little language games why are they so important why do they seem necessary at a time when you know the world is falling apart and i think that puns in particular they express this betrayal from the inside of language that was resonating it resonate, resonated then and it resonates now and i also think i think puns and rhyming are kind of they're they're not they don't function in a totally similar way but it is related because if you if you think about let's say what whether it's in verse or not a speech or a given by a character or you know a anything written in language that's it's trying to make a point it's trying to make use of the essential function of language to transmit information and it's doing so through logical means and then a pun is an embedding in that logical argument of of totally counter reason and it works against that logical argument and so does rhyme so so the fact that you know tall and ball have a s- similar sound to them it there's no rational meaning there's no meaning based connection between tall and ball it's simply it's simply aural it simply happens in the body our it's an association that our bodies cannot but hear and so when you read you know a line of verse it's it's structured highly by the meter it's structured by the form it's structured by the logical force of of the speaker or the artist behind the lines and then the rhyme is kind of a counter it's a counterpoise <laughs> to that logical thrust and and a pun I think is even more so because with a rhyme happening in in English verse as it usually does at the end you kind of expect it and it kind of it does make this kind of counterforce of logic but it also gives gives the verse shape and it gives it scale but a pun <laughs> a pun doesn't signal where it's going to fall in the verse so it's even more treacherous and i think that 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 potentiality of betrayal within language has been it's just for some people, at some times, it's just this this irresistible, disruptive force that you know they're they're bound or they, they're they're attracted to it because they see a correlation in the world of of nonsensical happenings and absurdity and uh, essentially the betrayals of of the world they find it satisfying to mimic that in a betrayal of language. And, and I do, too.
0: I don't want to overstate this because you haven't done a ton of published interviews, but in virtually every one I read or saw, you use that phrase, betrayal of language by language, a phrase you, you used a couple times in that answer. And I'm guessing that has to, uh, it, it sounds like you consider that a, a core foundational concept.
1: Yeah. But I think it's betrayal of language, but betrayal in general is important to me and betrayal as a foundation for tragedy and you know betrayal works two ways you can be betrayed by someone else or you can be betrayed by yourself and and I've used both in the work for example in Sadie the Saddest Sadist Sadie is basically betrayed both ways. She's betrayed by Jack the soldier who, you know, gives her an STD. But she's also betrayed by herself and her her blind kind of enthusiasm for her war work and her patriotism. So she's she's seriously deluded. And
0: Jingoism is a double edged sword.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. the, The last refuge of scoundrels.
0: So, if you're countering logic with rhymes and puns, and if you're you're courting absurdity, as you said, is it natural imperative that narrative arc is less important than the use of words and verse?
1: You know I think, and I've become more and more convinced about of the importance of narrative and and the the incredible power of narrative as a tool and the flexibility of narrative and to me. My working definition of what is a narrative is events in proximity. So it doesn't have to be a story. I think that often there's sometimes you you can detect an anti-narrative streak in some of the talking about art in general or video art in particular. And people like, well, I don't want to make something narrative. Well, I think what they really don't want to do is make something that's overly plot based. You know, they don't want to make they don't want to make a, a soap opera, basically. They don't want to make a detective novel or or something. But a narrative is just I mean, a time based work, you can argue that any time based work operates. It, it's just a, it's a succession succession of events and they're put into proximity with each other by the dimensions or the runtime of the video. And so I've I've just kind of, as the more pieces that I've made, I've become kind of less burdened or less ashamed, basically, of making explicitly narrative works. And I think that narrative is a really great tool, in particular for artists, and I would count myself among them, who have who have some sort of critical bent, some sort of feeling of wanting to, wanting to point to some element of the culture and saying, this is wrong, or I don't like this. Or, you know, to me, even if it was just probably the most obvious example to me is in You Make Me Iliad, at the start of which I really wanted it to be a, a narrative about a woman sex worker on the Western Front because by that time I had done a lot of research and read a lot of things and I knew just from reading memoirs and poems and seeing cartoons that there were a lot of brothels on the Western Front on both sides and so I started basically looking for a primary document of some sort, maybe a letter, maybe a um, memoir, anything, even like an arrest record of a woman who had worked as a prostitute on the Western Front, and I couldn't find anything. So I went to my kind of friend and mentor, who's a great World War One historian, and I said, asked him if I was missing anything. And he said, No, there's not anything. There's not a single, not a single paragraph that's ever been located <laughs> of a woman describing her, her experience. So that's just entirely been lost. And so then at that point I had to, well, it was, of course it's devastating, you know, I, it's, it wasn't even a hundred years ago and this entire entire category of people who encompassed this extremely wrenching experience, nothing's left from, nobody cared about what they had to say. You know, the best option for the women who lived through that was to never mention it again. That's the conclusion that I drew. And so that, that was very hard and it affected the way that I structured the narrative. And so I kind of had to buttress her character between the two sources of information that I did have. And one was a male soldier, and the other one was a medical officer. And it was the medical officers who kind of organized the, the brothels and, you know, said, well, you can have 15 minutes with a woman and the brothels open from five to nine and you have to apply this ointment after you visit her. And like, yeah, I mean, like kind of the nitty gritty. And, but so that, that's how I ended up structuring the narrative, kind of buttressing this person who in terms of history was invisible by these two people who were visible, but it wasn't their story. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's why I think narrative can really come it can bring a bring a degree of explicitness
0: My guest is Mary Reed Kelly we'll be right back after a break Plaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston presents Sound Speed Marker by Teresa Hubbard and Alexander Birchler In this critically acclaimed trilogy of video installations and related photographs Texas and its associated cinematic imagery serve as platforms for reflections on filmmaking itself. Also at Blaffer through September 5th, a collaboration by Henning Boll and Sergey Cherupnin combines sculptures, drawings, and sound into a multidimensional storytelling platform. More at blafferartmuseum.org. See the signature work of Andy Warhol's career exactly as it was first exhibited in 1962 along with iconic screen prints and drawings, illustrations and illustrated books in and Andy Warhol, Campbell's Soup Cans, and other works, 1953 to 1967, now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. There's also live music and refreshments on Thursday nights, conversations about modern and contemporary art, and Yoko Ono's participatory white chess set, all outdoors in MoMA's idyllic sculpture garden throughout July and August. Find out more at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And I'm back with Mary Reed Kelly. I want to go back to to what we were talking about a moment ago when you were talking about how your protagonists tend to be sex workers. And you could have gotten into the experience of, of women during World War One by looking at, say, their experience in the war industry's focused workforce or in progressive politics, as Adam Hoxhile does in his book To End All Wars. And I wonder if you you chose sex workers entirely. You know, you you talked a moment ago about how one reason you were attracted to making sex workers protagonists in your work is because their stories hadn't been recorded by history. And I wonder if you looked for ways in which women were, were primary actors in other parts of of World War One era history, and 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 found that they were recorded in a way and thus weren't appealing to you, or if you haven't gotten to that yet. Or, or if there are other parts of of that experience that interest you.
1: Well, definitely the the two films preceding *You Make Me* *Iliad*. Sadie is a munitions worker in London, and there's there's actually a, just a fantastic book called *On Her, Their Lives Depend*. And oh, I don't have it with me. It's actually at the ICA. It's oh, it's by Angela Woolcott. That's who it is, and it was it's part of this wave of scholarship that kind of started in kind of in like the 80s and 90s and was mostly led by women scholars to to actually find that that record and in the case of women industrial war workers a lot of the records was were still intact, intact. and a, and a historian like Angela Wolcott did this incredible job of compiling and analyzing the information. And some of the information included things like they had these organizations for women doing war work where they had their own magazines and their own kind of professional publications. They had their own sports teams. And so there's just an incredible wealth of information. And so, I mean, when when I can find information like that, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, I, I don't feel at all drawn to subjects which are only, you know, irretrievably lost. And and then, of course, the one before that was the Queen's English, and she was a nurse. And my uh, source for that was this really amazing and kind of surreally goth- gothic book of short stories written by an American woman who had nursed on the front. But when, so, and I already spoke about Iliad and what it was like to research that. A- afterwards, I was so unsettled by, I, I had the feeling that I didn't do her justice and I had to use these two male characters to kind of amplify her story. So I went back in time and so that's that's why the, the the character of Sisyphus and the syphilis of Sisyphus is also a sex worker because I wanted to revisit that character and make it much more about her. So Sisyphus is essentially a monologue. It's not a dialogue at all. It's just simply her voice the whole time. And ironically there was much, much, much more information about what it was like to be a sex worker in Paris in the 18th and 19th centuries than there ever was information about what it was like to be a sex worker during the war uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So even though it's much longer ago, there was much more information. And that information took the form of mostly arrest records, statements given to police and to doctors. And there was one really landmark study of Parisian sex workers in the 1830s by a French doctor named Parent Duchelet. And it's one of the first kind of sociological sex surveys. And he basically did this enormous scale survey of prostitutes in Paris. And so in the case of Sisyphus, I had this, you know, I had this wealth of wealth of information, more or less from the time period that she was living. And so I felt that's, that's why I wanted to revive her character was to basically to be able to write a story that was much more centrally focused on her.
0: You mentioned the Queen's English, and I have a couple of clips I'd like to play, a couple of audio, of course, clips that I'd like to play from your work. And I'm hoping we can kind of use them as a way to tease out your, your pretty fantastic use of language. And so this one's from the Queen's English.
1: He was shaking like a leaf. So I covered him in glory. His cold heart was a stone. His ribcage was a quarry. From this point on, I knew that Achilles couldn't heal, nor could Ajax scrub the stains from the sink of how I feel. Sweat was streaming from his brow. I sought a slick embrace. As I bent to kiss Narcissus, I saw my own reflected face. And I said, I love you, darling, the way a Dutchman loves a dike." The way a woman needs a man that needs a fish that needs a bike.
0: That was from Mary Reed Kelly's 2008 "The Queen's English." The references in there range from classical mythology to kind of 1970s consumer products, which is a rather extraordinary range for for six or eight lines. And I'm, I, I guess, I'm wondering how you get there. Do you do you do you sit down with a pencil and kind of? you know, write out a rough draft and work through a series of rough drafts the way a writer might? Or is it a much kind of slower process of returning to to a stanza or a couple of stanzas over a period of many months?
1: Well, yeah, it it's, takes the form of, you know, dozens of drafts. And, you know, the Queen's English was the first time, because the Camel toe doesn't really contain much wordplay per se. And so the Queens English was the first time that I really explored it or felt like I could maybe give it a, a try. And what really, what I was really going for in this was not so much punning, but strings of euphemism because what I was.
0: You've, more than that though, really euphemism with overlapping references.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's right. But but the idea of but but like the idea of like a a cliche, like a cold heart was a stone or shaking like a leaf or that that things like a cliche. Like I I was struck by the the poverty of language to describe suffering and, and dying and the and the many attempts in First World War poetry to kind of overcome that that poverty or to speak about it in a different way. And so generally when I'm writing, I keep, it's, I go through this period of, well, actually a really, a really fertile point, uh, time that I collect a lot of the the puns or the euphemisms or the references is when I'm reading. And so I'll, I'll read something and it'll just be, you know, like a history text or something and I'll read a line and you know, that part of your mind that's always kind of talking back to what you're reading, or particularly if you're reading something kind of dry and your this part of your mind is like bored and it's, it wants, it wants to play. And so I'll be trying to read and, or like, I'll sit down to read some text that I know I have to read and my mind will be like, yeah, me, 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 you know, it, <laughs> and so it'll, it'll be, it's, it's always frustrating because there. I will be like, okay, but I I have to I have to read this, this this 20 page article mind, and the mind will be, well, I don't want you to, <laughs> and so I'm going I'm going to distract you by making all these puns and jokes and by turning the language back upon itself. So it's a lot <laughs> when I'm actually trying to get stuff done or or read something challenging is uh, ironically when. I think my mind is most primed to disrupt that process and it can be quite fruitful. And so generally what I try to do is whenever I'm reading is I keep a notebook open and I kind of just record all of this kind of the voice of my non-cooperative self, which is constantly playing. And, And that's one of the truisms that I think wordplayists, people who are into wordplay, can can reveal is that it's often much more difficult to get language to function smoothly and that language really wants to play and it wants to be nonsensical and it wants to trip you up.
0: So it really does start with the wordplay. I mean, when you make a piece, you know, a 15 minute piece starts then really with wordplay.
1: It starts, it starts with a character first. I always know who's going to speak. And then I try to think, well, okay, so like in the Queen's English it's a nurse. How how would she be deluded? You know, what what would her what would her kind of blindness be? What would she be resisting in terms of you know, self-knowledge?
0: And then and then you you write it and then I guess the storyboarding or the creation of the visual look and feel if you will comes last.
1: Yeah, that's right. Generally I generally the writing comes almost entirely first. And then the visual, I kind of, you know, by the time I've, it's taken, you know, a couple of months or, or that it usually takes maybe four months to write something like.
0: So let, let me, let me stop you there for a second and maybe let's, let's get at this idea using a specific work and, and, and let's use the syphilis of Sisyphus from 2011. Um, and let me play a, a, a clip from that because I think it's a good link to what we're talking about between the words and the visual.
1: Strong discipline, needed to bury these pimples with inch-thick rice powder. Complexions aren't simple, and nothing so gouache as to be badly painted. Technique must be pure because nature has tainted life's mortar with pestilence, desperate to wreak her foul havoc of impudence right on my cheek.
0: And that was from Mary Reed Kelly's The Syphilis of Sisyphus from 2011. Just before we played that clip, we were talking about the link between the written and the visual. And I was wondering if you could talk us through how how you did that with that scene, because I think that's a really clear example of that link.
1: Right. Well, and I I should say that the the idea for this scene in which she's applying her makeup, talking about, you know, kind of extolling her cosmetic uh, routine, but also talking about, the kind of the abstract nature of beauty came from this small section in Baudelaire's *The Painter of Modern Life*, in which he actually—I think the section is called *In Praise of Cosmetics*. And and I he, I think he's even though it's a very funny <laughs> section, I think he's being quite serious. And he talks about the superiority of the painted face in its abstracted perfection and how much superior that is to kind of a raw, pimpled, bedraggled face, you know, the face of nature, essentially. So Sisyphus is kind of an exaggeration of that perspective. And so, I mean, yeah, the, and moreover the connection, one of the connections between the verse and the face painting, and particularly the covering of the eyes is, you know, I think you could, imagine verse as being a very artificial way of speaking it's a very stylized a very it's a way of speaking full of rules meter you know the use of rhyme and so it's it's extremely formalized language and and it's and it's a reduction of possibility when you commit to you know a, a rhyme scheme of A-A-B-B-C-C, you drastically reduce the number of possibilities open to you to use as part of your expression. And I think of the face, the painted face, as using those same processes of reduction and formalization. And the covering of the verse with rhyme and meter and the covering of the eyes with a picture of an eye.
0: And painting's ability to idealize.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, that that connection of the, you know, the formalization of the verse and the formalization of the face is, you know, is present in pretty much all of the work because it's all in verse and it's all painted faces. But in, in Sisyphus, there was this, kind of irresistible opportunity given by this Baudelaire essay to kind of be explicit about the pleasures of the artificial world, this artificial world that, you know, we'd already been investing in. And so Sisyphus is talking explicitly about the pleasures of painting the face.
0: There are mirrors in a number of your works, but probably nowhere more so than in Sisyphus and and, and by mirrors I guess I also mean references to mirrors where where you kind of frame yourself in what appears to be a mirror I'm, I'm guessing that with that film in particular that was a kind of a conceptual decision to play with not just kind of reality and idealization but also with the history of painting of the period about which you're making your piece
1: sure like the famous Manet painting of the woman at the bar
0: and even all the way through Matisse
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's, that definitely comes into play. And, but also I think, yeah, there, there's mirrors licitly in Iliad and in Sisyphus and, you know, as we've kind of talked.
0: And and I should, I I guess I should point out that we're not always seeing you or the protagonist in the mirror. You also use the surfaces of the mirrors to show us things that couldn't, if I, I feel like an idiot referring to reality, but couldn't really be there like Botticelli's Venus.
1: Right. That's right. Well, and of course, that, that, that instance that you're talking about in Priapus Agonistes is, I think, indicating of the role that I, I, I think that they always play, which is to emphasize that the most, I mean, to me, the most important thing about the characters is their, their self-delusion. And so when Venus looks into her mirror and sees Botticelli's Venus, you know, she's not seeing her, her real face, you know, which is a pug and (laughs)
0: literally (laughs) in the, in the, in the, film, (laughs)
1: yeah. In the, in the film, she's wearing a, you know, a pug head and, and uh, another reference to a mirror, which doesn't actually have a mirror, but in, in the Queens English, she, when the nurse is caring for the dying soldier, she says, Sweat was sw- streaming from his brow, I sought a slick embrace. As I bent to kiss Narcissus, I saw my own reflected face. And so even even people who are, you know, nursing the dying still I just I just think it's it's part of human nature that I feel is true about me and that I see everywhere is that everything you relate everything to yourself. And so everywhere you look, you you see yourself. And you see yourself as As you want to be seen as or as you're afraid that you'll be seen (laughs) rather than as how you really are and so i think mirrors are just an interesting way to point that out
0: because i think there is an element of the design of it that's really interesting to me so when we when we see mirrors in in matisse or manet they're using those mirrors as a way of opening up two-dimensional space and playing with flatness and depth or not whereas when you're using mirrors your films are extremely visually and intentionally of course flat and your mirrors maintain that flatness they they ab- have they, they reject the idea really that that you could open up pictorial space with a mirror
1: yeah no i i think that would be that would be really fair to say i i think often of the you know one of the reasons there's two reasons that the camera doesn't ever move uh, or rarely moves. It's not, it doesn't, it moves sometimes, but really rarely. And in the last two films, well, in Sisyphus, it doesn't move at all because we really want rather than, than for them to feel like films or certainly to feel like television where the camera is, you know, the camera is like this other moving character. It's following some around and someone, uh, the characters around. And so we, you identify with, the camera. I didn't, we didn't want that feeling. We want, we want the, fi- the films to have a, an allegiance, not to film, but to a stage or to a, a page and to, and to a world that's much more static, much more trap-like. And so that's why I think it's, I like the interpretation of the mirrors not opening up a passage. The mirrors just reflect more of the trap.
0: Well, Mary Reed Kelly, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you so much, Tyler.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.